God, as we open up your word, we pray that you would do a work in us. I pray, God, you do a work in me. And I pray, Lord, in my weakness that you would be my strength. And I pray, Lord, your scripture would renew our minds, that it would heighten our love for Jesus, that we would love you more, oh, Father, as a result of being in your word. And we pray that your spirit would enlighten and open up the eyes of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. This morning we're going to jump into verse 6 and we're going to start a section that's going to take us all the way down through verse 18. And, and really the theme, I believe, of this section is Paul's exhortation to Timothy to not be ashamed, to not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. Suffer for the gospel of Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at verse 6 through 18 in three different sessions, so to speak, three different parts. And this morning, we're going to start by looking at the first part. So the title of the message is simply, Don't Be Ashamed. Don't be ashamed. And as we look at this, I want us to consider what we looked at last time. We looked at several different aspects. We looked at the background. We looked at the blessings, and we saw the beloved Timothy. And let's go back and look over this a little bit. When we think about Paul and the situation that he was writing in as he Pen 2 Timothy, we're reminded in chapter 1, verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, verse 16, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He's in chains. It's different than his first imprisonment that he had in the book of Acts. This is the imprisonment right before his death. He's under the leadership of the notorious Nero who burnt the city of Rome and persecuted the Christians. When we think about the early church in the first 300 years, we think about all of the dictators of Rome and all of the persecutions. Nero really started that off. And we see that he had people in the ministry that were out to get him. When we think of the apostle Paul, we often think about what a hero of the church he is, but he had his enemies. And not only did he have the Judaizers, he had guys like Alexander the coppersmith mentioned in chapter four, and he speaks about him. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And we see that here's a man that has followed Christ all these years, that had been on three missionary journeys, that had experienced different imprisonments. And now he's in chapter four and he's writing Timothy, his second letter, four years after the first one, and he says, look, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. He asked Timothy to come to him three times in chapter four. And we learn about Timothy when we look back to the book of Acts. Timothy was a man that came to know Jesus in Lystra, 
And on Paul's second missionary journey, or the second time to Lystra, we read about Timothy in Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. He, he was a servant of Timothy. And, and we start this, this series, you know, last time we looked at 1 Corinthians 4, 14. We looked at Philippians 2, 19 through 22. And I want to go through these with you because I sort of blitzed them. But I want you to get the heart of this as we start the letter. Because it really helped me to get a sense of like, what is the relationship between these two men? We see that Timothy ministers with Paul and Silas in Philippi, 80-50. We see that Paul flees Berea. Timothy and Silas continue the work, AD 51. Timothy rejoins Paul in Athens to bring word of the work to Macedonia. Timothy returns to Thessalonica to encourage the new believers. I want you to notice, I mean, this is a faithful brother in the Lord that left everything that he had in Lystra to serve the apostle Paul. And we see that he joins Paul in his ministry in Corinth. We see that he comes to Ephesus to work with Paul. We see that he sends, or Paul sends a letter with Timothy to Corinth in AD 56. We see on and on, Timothy was a part of this uh, work to write Romans. He's with Paul during his first imprisonment in Rome. He goes to Ephesus, or Paul goes to Ephesus and appoints Timothy as the pastor in AD 62. So here at this point, we're 12 years in. We're 12 years into all these things. He writes 1 Timothy, Paul does in AD 62. We see major persecutions of the Christians in Rome following the great fire of Nero. And now all the way down around AD 67, 17 years after they had started this whole journey of ministry together, Paul is writing to this young pastor saying, Timothy, don't be ashamed. Suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he does starting in verse six, he's gonna give him five reminders Five reminders as to why he should not be ashamed, why he should suffer for Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at two of them this morning. The first one that we're going to see is, Timothy, remember your faith. Remember your faith. What is the anchoring text in all of this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 through 18. Look at verse 8 with me. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been tempted to be ashamed of Jesus Christ? Have you ever been tempted to be ashamed? Have you ever thought, well, if I share the gospel of Christ at work or at school or on a plane or in a restaurant or at the ball fields, that I might just be looked at as a religious 
freak. People may think that I'm crazy. Have you ever shared the gospel of Christ with somebody and they were astonished that you would share Christ? I'll tell you, when I went to uh, seminary the first time in my 20s, uh, I went to Portland, Oregon. And one thing that I learned about Portland that was fascinating to me is they said it was the most unevangelized city in America, that there were more atheists in Portland than any other place in America. And I remember my buddy, Mickey, that's preached here many times, he was working at Starbucks, and I always used to go to Starbucks because he'd give me free coffee. And uh, I remember one day, I, I got into a conversation with a coworker of his, and, and I'll never forget it. I mean, in the, in the Bible Belt, you don't typically have these kind of conversations, and the guy was baffled. He goes, wait a minute, you're a Christian. You serious about this? I said, yes. And he literally grabbed a friend and he said, come here, this guy actually believes in Christianity. He believes in the Bible. I was sort of like uh, put on display as like, you know, a freak show. This guy believes that you really believe this. You really believe the claims of the Bible. You really believe what the Bible says. I'll never forget that. I was 23 and I'd never had an encounter with someone that literally thought it was flabbergasting that they were beholding someone who believed in the Bible. A lot of people, they will go to church, but they're scared to death to be public about their faith. They're scared to death to think about what their acquaintances at work who may profess Christ but don't follow Christ, what they would think if they brought Jesus into conversations, what they would think if they actually were active in the work of evangelism with the people that they cared about and had acquaintances with. And I want you to think about this because everyone who's ever lived, who's ever followed Christ has been tempted, I believe, to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes to an individual who's experienced great loyalty and great faithfulness, 17 years proving his cause and loyalty to the gospel. And now he admonishes this young brother, this young son in the faith, to not be ashamed. Let's go back to verse 3. The first reality I really believe that he challenges him to remind him of, to remember, Timothy, remember your faith. Remember your faith. In verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Sometimes the people that we're least likely to pray for are those following Christ. You ever notice that? I've, I've been a part of uh, church prayer meetings where it was a list of every possible person that had been sick in that county for the last six months. And I think we covered most of them at some of those meetings. And often it, it was a list of the sick, which we ought to pray for to bring our needs before Christ. I'm not trying to belittle that. But I'm trying to say that often it's the only focal point. 
We would pray for the sick and we would pray for those struggling. But so often, I can't point a finger at those dear people. I've been guilty of the same thing. The people that I often remember to pray for the most are the people that are suffering and are sick, are people that are struggling in their faith, are people that are lost. But here we see a reality of something we never need to forget. The prayers that Paul shows here for his dear son in the faith, Timothy, to pray for those that are walking the walk, to pray for those who are continuing the fight. And, and, and Paul here shows this, this fellowship. He says, I, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day as I remember your tears. I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. And then in verse 5, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Last time, briefly, we mentioned that word sincere. He says, I'm reminded, Timothy, of your sincerity, your sincere faith. It's the word that means without pretense, without pretending. It's the idea about without hypocrisy. It's genuine, real, true, sincere. We've all been around people, and it takes one to know one, but we've all been around people who were phony whose Christianity was only surface level. They said all the right phrases. They said all the right things, but their lives were frauds. They would act one way at church and completely different outside the walls of church. That's not what was happening with Timothy. He was sincere. He was genuine. He was real. He was true. What you saw was the reality of his life. It was a gift of God's grace. It was a work of the Spirit. And, and, and to give you an idea of the type of faith that Timothy exhibited, for Paul to say that it was sincere, we could learn a lot by looking at some words used of that same word in other places. He says in Romans, Paul says, let love be genuine. That's the word. It's genuine. He says, I've seen your genuine faith. And, and, and here, in not only 2 Timothy, but in 1 Timothy, he uses this same word. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. And then he says, and a sincere faith. You remember the wisdom that James describes that's from above? He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. And then he describes the wisdom from above by saying it's impartial and sincere. And the question becomes, how does a person get a faith like that? How does a person get this type of authenticity in their faith? Well, the answer, the only answer that we could ever understand is what Paul says in Ephesians. It has to be a work of the Spirit. For by grace you've been saved, Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's a gift of God. Authentic faith is a gift. And I want you to consider this. Don't ever undervalue this. 
And, and I know the sentiment of what people mean when they say the following, but, but sometimes, and again, I understand it. It could just be maybe a not thought out well choice of words, but often you'll hear somebody say, so-and-so believed in Christ, and people will say, I am so proud of you. That's the best decision you will ever make. I agree with that sentiment, but it's misunderstanding it. It's not that they're better decision people than other people in society. It's not that we applaud and approve and praise their decision-making skills. Their faith, biblically, theologically, is a gift of the Holy Spirit of God. And sometimes if our first reaction is to praise them for their decision, the less likely we are to see faith as a gift. You hear what I'm saying? Because a lot of people, because of their way they look at faith, they don't see it as something that ought to be praised, that ought to be a worshipful reaction to God. Yet Paul here builds his argument as he speaks about the sincerity of the faith of Timothy, as he mentions Lois, as he mentions Eunice, he then drives home the point and he speaks to the reality that this faith was evidence of something greater. Look there, he says in verse five, he says, in verse five, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well for this reason, I remind you, for this reason. I want to encourage you today. You may be thinking, okay, you look at your, your struggles, you look at your weaknesses. I want you to be encouraged. If there's a desire to follow Christ with a genuineness and a sincerity, I want you to ask yourself the question, where did that come from? How did that get there? You see, in the book of Acts, we read where in Acts 16, 12, we, we begin to get acquainted with a lady named Lydia. And, and as the story unfolds in Acts 16, verse 14, it says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And then it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And, and what's so amazing here is it reminds us that if we have faith and we have any type of sincerity and any type of receptivity to the things of God, it's because just like Lydia, God opened up our eyes. He opened up our eyes. It's a gift of the spirit of God. You remember when, uh, Barnabas, I love that name, Barnabas Ministry, because Barnabas was the son of encouragement. He was the son of encouragement. And you remember when um, they sent Barnabas to Antioch in Acts eleven twenty two, 22, 
and they want him to go down to Antioch to see what God is doing. In verse 23, look what happens when Barnabas arrives. When he came and saw the grace of God. I love that phrase. You go, wait a minute, he saw the grace of God? What did it look like? It's like you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. You can't see grace, so to speak, but you can see the effects of grace. And he saw the effects of grace in the Christians there. He saw evidence of the Holy Spirit working in their midst. Paul, as he writes to Timothy, he was mindful of what God had begun in him, and he wanted to remind him of what this was about. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight. You say, why is this a big deal? Why is faith such a manifestation of the Spirit? That's a really good question if that's in your mind. Paul answers it in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Look what he says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So in order for us to have spiritual appraisement of spiritual things, what are we desperately in need of? The Spirit of God to open up our eyes. We need the gift of faith in order to believe. And Paul says, Timothy, I've seen your sincere faith. I saw it in Eunice. I saw it in Lois. I'm sure it dwells within you. I was reminded years ago, I was on a, uh, a plane and I was flying next to a guy, and um, it really is fascinating. I, I heard this as a preacher's kid. Dad would always say he, he, was a, he flew 2 million miles with Delta, so he always got bumped up. He was fortunate. And uh, they make those seats on those airlines for people. I think they, the test case for all the Delta seats is people that are four foot eight, And you can't get in a seat. And so he, would, he, would, he longed to get bumped up so he could just not have his knees crammed up in the back of a seat in front of him. And he always used to say, Stephen, it's amazing. I'll sit there and we're having these conversations and I'm talking to these guys about everything you can imagine and we're getting along great. And then um, it'll come up what they do. They're a CEO, they run this, they run that. And they'll look at me and they say, what do you do? And he says, I'm a pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, Stephen, these CEOs break out into hives. They don't know how to talk to me anymore. They get so bizarre. And I've had that same experience. And I was flying next to a young man who was a college graduate of Harvard. And he was working in a financial industry, if I remember correctly, in Chicago. And I asked him if he was a Christian. And I'll never forget it. He looked at me and he said, I once believed, but I no longer believe anymore. And he looked at me and I said, why don't you believe? Tell me what your story is. And he started telling me all these things as to why he no longer believed. And I sought to encourage this guy and share with this guy. But as I got off that plane, I want you to see something. It wasn't that I was better at faith than he was. You know, like, tell me things about yourself. I'm 6'5", I like pizza, I, I'm pretty good at faith. I'm a better decision maker than ex-Harvard students. No, what is it? Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith for this reason. 
the reason of God's work in you to open your eyes. Timothy, never lose sight. Never, never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want you to think about your story. Have you lost sight of your story? Have you lost sight of the awe and the majesty of what God did to break down your resistance? All that the Father gives to him will come to him. No one comes into the Son unless the Father draws him. And here what you see is the reminder of God's work in the life of his servant. And Timothy begins this section moving down through verse 18 to remind Timothy of his faith. But second of all, remember your gifts, Timothy. Remember your gifts. He brings him back to a reminder of the gifts that God had given him. And he says in verse 6, For this reason I remind you, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We, we jump into this, and what we're going to try to do, first of all, is look at what is he referring to when he speaks of the gift of God, and then we're going to look into what does he mean by fan it into flame, and we're also going to try to explore why is he speaking about this through the means of the laying on of hands. That's going to be the goal of how we're going to try to walk through this. What is the ministry that God had given Timothy? I think we can find the answer in 2 Timothy in chapter 4. If you look at chapter 4, look at the opening verses. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. myths. And then he says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He had been given a gift. He had been given a gift that you could describe as one that involved preaching the word, that involved reproving, rebuking, exhorting with patience and with teaching, that involved being sober-minded, that involved doing the work of an evangelist that involved fulfilling his calling on his life. And now Paul in prison, isn't it remarkable that he doesn't write him and say, Timothy, I'm having it rough. I'm in a prison on a false charge. I'm here because this is not just. Get me out of here. Pray for me that I can get out of here. This is wrong. What is he doing? Here's a man that is so captivated by the blessings that he gives at the opening of the letter. Remember, it says, Paul, an apostle, according to the life 
that is in Christ Jesus, grace, peace, and mercy to you. Here's a man that his life is Christ. He's living as a spiritual mentor to this young son in the faith, and he writes him in a place of suffering, and he says, Timothy, never lose sight of the gift that God has given you. Never lose sight of it. I want you to make sure you fan into flame the gift that God has given you, Timothy. Never lose sight of it. Never forget it. He reminds him of the sincerity and the genuineness of his faith, but then he reminds him of his gift. He reminds him of the gift, and, and I want us to think about this, you know. What does it mean to fan into flame? I was reading uh, one commentary. It, it, it reminded me that this is in the present tense. Timothy, fan into flame. Continue to fan into flame the gift that God has given you. The commentary says he was to do this by exercising his gift passionately. So many different thoughts on this from many different godly people. Bruce Hurt, a guy that has really given his life in retirement to putting a lot of different passages and commentaries and quotes together. I came across some of these from him, all of this section. He said, Clarence Jordan says, I'm reminding you, Timothy, to shake the ashes off the God-given fire that's in you. Jim Elliott once wrote, am I ignitable? God deliver me from the dread, the dead, asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the spirit that I may be aflame. You know what's crazy is you ever heard of Robert Murray McShane? He died at 30 years old. He said, the oil of the lamp in the temple burnt away in giving light, so should we. Richard Baxter said, what have we time and strength for but to lay out both for God? What is a candle made for but to burn? Spurgeon says, God deserves to be served with all the energy of which we are capable. Samuel Chadwick said, men ablaze are invincible. Hell trembles when men kindle. Quote after quote after quote of what it means. One wrote, anyone who has prepared a campfire for warming or cooking is fully aware that the coals need to be stirred up occasionally. As long as the coals are glowing, they can be stirred up into a full blaze. Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. Ben and Will like watching this show called The Outdoor Boys. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of shows that they watch that uh, I've lost brain cells watching on YouTube. But this one's, all, this one's okay. I, I, I actually like it. it. It's pretty interesting. There's a dad and three boys. Is there three boys or two boys, Will? There's three? Yeah, there's three. And, and they do adventure camping. He's pretty crazy. I mean, it's pretty intense. I mean, he does stuff in Alaska. He builds these digs down into the snow. It's, it's fascinating. And this guy puts me to shame when it comes to camping and a lot of things. And he can start a fire anywhere, anywhere, at any time. And he gets that, I mean, he'll, he'll get a little fire going. And the first thing he always does is he's blowing on it. He's making sure it's got air. 
He's making sure he's got oxygen going. And, and when he's dealing with fires, he's constantly fanning into flame the fire that he has started. But the situation's different here. God has started the fire. The Spirit of God has done a work in the heart that led to conversion, that, that, that brought about regeneration, that brought about the work of the Spirit. I love this because a lot of people in our area, and, and I say this not to condemn them, but I'm just telling you the truth. This, we don't receive the Spirit. We don't get the ghost after our conversion. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing at conversion. Romans 8 says, if we don't have the Spirit, we're not even a child of God. Ephesians says that after listening to the message of truth, after believing in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of promise. We received the spirit when we were saved. We were baptized by the spirit into the body of Christ instantaneously when we believed on Jesus Christ. But now God has begun to work in us. But now we see this, 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 this theme that is similar to what Paul writes to Philippi when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we see this unique divine enablement, this divine power, but we see for the Christian, we are called to work out our salvation, to not be lazy, to not be indifferent, to not be on the sidelines, to not be passive, to not just let go and let God, but to be faithfully dependent upon him, laboring according to faith and according to his grace that works within us. I tell you, there, there's so many truths to begin to chew on here. Before we jump in a little bit more here, I want to read you a couple more of these. John Gill says, speaking of this whole idea of the fan the flame, and these may be re-inflamed or increased when they seem on the decline by reading, meditation, prayer, the frequent exercises of them. Fan in the flame, Timothy. Fan in the flame the gift that God has given you. On and on and on, we see this in the word of God. Stir up that fire. Now, I want you to think here, because what does this mean, and what, what, what do we do with this? You know, how does this relate to us? When we look at a text, we, we often think about it, and what is the near application, what is the far application? If, if I'm holding a rope on one end, you're holding the rope on the other end, the first application we're thinking of is like the closest one. The closest one is to Timothy in his ministry and how it relates to everything in Ephesus, and you could say right after that would be the minister in the gospel as it relates to his calling. But as you move down that rope, an honest, consistent application to this text would be how does that relate to you who's not a minister? How does it relate to you in regards to the gift that God has given you? And is it true that God has given you a gift? He speaks of the gift that he had given Timothy, but I want us to consider the gift that God has given us. Now, Stephen Cole here makes a really interesting observation. When we look at the spiritual gifts and we look at passages dealing with God's gifts, 
it is clear that every Christian has a gift. Let me give you an example, Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Notice it's speaking of every Christian, every believer. 1 Corinthians 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul says in Ephesians, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. First Peter continues this thought. He says, as each has received a gift. Now, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that if the spirit of God lives within me and I'm part of the body of Christ, there's biblical evidence that I've received a gift, potentially gifts, plural, to use for the edification of the body to the glory of Christ. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So, so here we, we have this unique picture where Paul says, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This could have been part of the apostolic ministry of Paul uniquely as he puts his hands on Timothy, displaying the gift that God had given him. It could simply be the public affirmation of that very gift, but I want you not to miss the fact of the gift, because as we think about Timothy, how he was to fan into flame the gift that God had given him, I want us to consider how we are to fan into flame the gifts that God has given us. And are we rejecting and being negligent of that work of God? Yesterday at the house, uh, everybody, it was like every shower in the house was being used at one point. And the dishwasher was running. I think it was crazy. And, and, and everyone was complaining. I kept hearing people yell, there's cold water. There's no hot water. Well, that makes sense until you realize that you've got a tankless water heater. And you pay more for those things to avoid that, right? So I called up the plumber that I often call. He's a great guy. And I said, man, I got a question. I said, why in the world are we not getting hot water? We got an electric tankless water heater. He says, well, he goes, probably you need to flush it. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you're supposed to flush them every year. And I was like, uh-oh. And he goes, I said, well, can you help me? And he goes, uh, yeah. I said, he goes, if it hadn't been flushed, and I'm thinking we're 0 for 16 because we've been there 16 years and it's never been flushed. <laughs> that tankless water heater has gone through great neglect. Now, the question I've got for you this morning, are you neglecting the work that God has done in you? Are you like sort of on the sideline? completely apathetic to the reality of the work of the Spirit in you. Not only as it relates to your faith, but as it relates to the way that God has uniquely gifted you in the body of Christ. Now, this is where it gets amazing, because you remember 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I think sometimes, unfortunately, church leadership can model it all wrong into programming people to sometimes think that the pastors do the work and the people watch them do the work. But that is a wrong takeaway. I want you to consider, I've got a lot more to say, but I realize I'm going to try to start landing the plane here. The, I want you to think about something. Okay, what if you're sitting there today and you're going, okay, I, 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 what does it mean I've got a spiritual gift? I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Every time I've ever taken a spiritual gift inventory test, I just answered the questions the, according to the gift that I wanted. Because you can sort of figure, it's like a personality test. You can sort of see which way, if you don't want to be this way, you just sort of answer the questions different. I, I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying me personally, I... Maybe they are helpful, but I haven't seen them that helpful sometimes. But let me give you some ideas here. What are ways that you can discover your gift? How can I know what it is? I want you to pray and ask God. God, would you lead me to know and and to walk and function? And if I'm to fan and to flame the gift that you've given me, would you give me discernment and wisdom as to what my gifts are, my gift or gifts are? But then I want you to do something that is Pursue God's clear revealed will. Just pursue what is clear. Don't focus on the things you don't know about life. Focus on what is clear. There's a lot of passages in the Bible that speak about what is God's will for you. One of them is Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled with the Spirit. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Start there. Pray. Ask God, God, I want to be obedient to what you're telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. Would you help me to fan in the flame the gift that you've given me? Would you help me not to be negligent of your work in my life? Would you reveal to me how to walk in that in obedience? And then start asking God to control you, read his word and seek to obey it and ask God for help in obeying it. But then I want you to think of a passage like Romans chapter 12, verse six through eight. There's several different passages you could study spiritual gifts on. But Romans 12, 6 through 8 seems to be one of the purest list of the service gifts. Romans 12, 6 through 8, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I'm all over the place on the board up there. But it says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You look at a list like that, he gives one, two, three, four, five, six. He gives seven. I really believe that what he's speaking about here, prophecy seems to be very similar to teaching, but it's more of a preaching with conviction 
a call and a challenge to follow the text that is being taught. Service. Some of you have teaching gifts here. You've got, some of you in here may have preaching gifts. We know that those preaching gifts, according to the New Testament, are given to to men. We know that, um, but there's teaching gifts that would also apply to women in the right context. But then he mentions prophecy. He mentions service. Service would be meeting practical needs, the practical needs that are met behind the scenes, meeting practical needs of people in the body of Christ. Another one here is teaching. Teaching, they both deal with the word prophecy and teaching. Teaching seems to focus more on clarity. I just want people to understand what the text means. It's not as much the conviction aspect of preaching, but the teacher has a heartbeat for the clarity of the word of God to be seen when it's taught. They want people to know what the text means. But then there's the word exhortation. It literally is used, it's a word used of the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside someone. And it appears in a New Testament context to come alongside somebody with the word of God and and, and give them encouragement, to come alongside them and to show them how the word of God applies to their life. Exhortation. He speaks here about those that have the gift of giving. It, it seems to be that while we're all called to give, it seems here that there's a uniqueness to some in the body of Christ who give with a liberality of the spirit in a unique and powerful way. And God uses their ministry and their gift of giving. He gives another one here, one who leads. There's leadership gifts in the body of Christ. Very likely more administrative in mind, but the, the bottom idea is, is that they can lead people to say, we're going from here to here. But then the final one, gifts of mercy Gifts of mercy. I, I know this is a quick overview here, but I want us just to think and consider how this might apply to us, what Paul tells Timothy there in verse six. But I want you to consider something. Then what? We said pray and ask God. We said seek to follow God's clear revealed will. Seek to be obedient as best you can by the grace of God. Study the gift list. But then what? I want to challenge you. Join a church that teaches the Bible. I pray it would be here. And, and if you've known me for 16 years, I'm not about numbers. I'm not about building a big empire of like, we want to grow to X amount of numbers so we can validate. I've never been about that. But I'm going to challenge you. Membership, I believe with all my heart is biblical. And one aspect that's healthy is it gives accountability. I challenge you, you know, if you decide not to join a church, I challenge you to be very biblical as to why you've decided not to. Look at it and biblically argue. And I say that because if you're going to fan into flame the gift that's within you, I really believe you're going to need people around you. You're going to need accountability. Look for ways to be involved. Look for ways to have further associations with the body of Christ. Look for ways. Seek out ways. Seek to be around others. Ask God for a spiritual mentor. Ask God for mentors. Again, pray for wisdom. 
Pray and ask God for people to speak into your life. As you seek to serve, start noticing what you love to do and have a great desire to do. And often, have you ever noticed, if you've ever experienced this, often people will say, wow, it's amazing how God used you in your service, how God used you in your exhortation. It's amazing how God used you in your teaching It's encouraged me. And you often begin to find glimpses of possibly how God may have gifted you by the Spirit in practical ways in the body of Christ. Wow, God's gifted you with leadership. You've led that group well. We see God's hand in it and how you've handled that. Just some ideas, but pray, but use it. He says, fan The flame, Vance Havner, if you know Vance Havner, you know his voice, and his voice will never leave your mind. But he's got one of the greatest voices a preacher's ever had, and if you don't know, look it up this afternoon. But he says there are so many things that can smother the fire. He says willful sin will do it. Are you walking in unconfessed sin this morning? If you're walking in unconfessed sin, you're not going to walk with the joy of assurance. You're not going to walk with peace and hope and joy. You're going to walk in a miserable state when you're around the things of God because you're neglecting the fire. You're not fanning into flame the fire. You are neglecting it. And I I encourage you this morning, don't live in willful sin. It will smother the fire. Havner goes on. He says, neglect will smother the fire. He says, let the fire alone and it will burn low and the ashes will gather. If we neglect the means of grace, prayer, the word, and holy exercise, we shall soon need a stirring. Wow, I think Pastor Havner's very wise. Because you know what? If you got that fire and you still got the glimmer of the fire and you get that poker and you go over there and you move around things and you make sure you get that fire going again. He says then to others can quench the spirit and smother our fire. (laughs) He says, if the devil cannot keep us from being saved, he next endeavors to make average Christians of us. And in this, he usually succeeds. The devil does not mind our joining church if we behave like most of those who are already inside. But when a real wide awake Christian breezes along taking the gospel seriously, the devil grows alarmed and begins plotting his downfall. And then four, he says, certainly fear can choke the fire. And I'm about to close, but I want to read where we're going to jump in next time. Look what he says to Timothy. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He's saying, Timothy, if, if you're walking in fear, it's not something that God gave you. That's not what God gives. He not only gave Timothy a spiritual gift, but through his spirit, he provides power, love, and self-control. Before we close, I want to just mention a couple of things real fast. We know Timothy was weak in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He seems to be weak at this time, or at least he was four years ago. We don't know exactly what was going on with him. 
He was a young guy. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And here we see this, and we don't know if it's a Timothy, don't be fearful, man. You're living out of fear, or we don't know if it's just the warning because it's a temptation that's common to all Christians, but all to be said this morning, and we'll jump in next time. Remember your faith, Timothy. Remember your gift. Remember your faith. Remember your gift. Just a few questions before we leave. Have you been tempted to be ashamed? Will you pray with me that we would reflect on verse 6 through 18 as we walk through this and consider what Paul gives Timothy as reminders of why he shouldn't be ashamed? The next question I want you to think of today, have you lost sight of, the, of God's work in you? Have you lost sight of it? Do you downplay the miracle of saving faith? The miracle that you desire to pursue Christ? What's the explanation? The explanation can't come from the natural side. The explanation, if you're a believer seeking to grow, if you're a believer seeking to be conformed into the image of Christ, if you're a believer, even though you may be neglecting the fire of this moment, your heart is stirred by what God says in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Where did that come from? Never neglect the work of what God's spirit has done in you. Have you lost sight of your spiritual gifts? Maybe have you neglected it to the point where you haven't even considered your spiritual gifts? Are you fearful? But I want to encourage you. As we walk through this passage, the heartbeat behind it is we need rescuing grace and Christ is readily available to provide it. This morning, as we consider our heart, our spiritual vitality, our spiritual growth, as we consider our salvation, let us look to Jesus because he's the one that can enable us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Would you bow your head with me? God, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, as we go through 2 Timothy, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. I pray we would learn from the Apostle Paul in his last words. I pray we would learn as we think about Timothy and his situation pastoring the church at Ephesus. I pray, Lord, we would not live in neglect of what you have begun within us and what you have done as a work of your spirit. I pray that we would fan into flame that which you have begun that we would walk with you actively. And I pray as we continue to examine and consider what these verses mean, I pray that we would have a heart that is dependent upon you. It's in Jesus' name.